morning, family. Good to see everyone. We have an awful lot to cover, and we're going to need the entire time, so let's jump right into it. Grab your Bibles. We're going to not have them on the screens. We're going to be reading them out of the physical word today because we're primarily in the book of Luke. And you'll want to turn to Luke chapter 10, verse 21. Uh, It's page 868, and the Bible's under the seat in front of you if you need to borrow one of those. Uh, And also take out the handout sheet that was given to you at the front door. Uh, And we can begin. Hi to everyone. Uh, Pastor Russ already said hi to you online. I want to say hi to you as well. Thank you for joining us. We love you and we're glad that you're around. Uh, Just know you're part of our body. Um, We are in part 53 of our Being Jesus series. And I entitled this morning's message, The More Necessary Thing. And I really kind of got to blow real fast through the intro and show you that fill in the blank in front of you with just a few thoughts. Uh, The Bible says that the most critical component of Christianity is love. It basically says it like this. What is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these hangs all the law and the prophets, all the Old Testament, all the New Testament. It all hangs on the issue of love. To fail in the area of love is to fail at the core of what Christianity is all about. However, I do not believe that we understand what type of love we are supposed to do because we are all doing it so poorly. And the reason why I say that uh, in what seems so shocking to me is that, make no mistake, I believe that our congregation, because I know most of you, uh, you're incredibly loving. I've been spending all these weeks talking about how loving you are and generous you are and sacrificial you are and, and you, how you bless my life. I mean, I get all that. And I'm still saying that we are not fully doing it right. And it's because the bar that Jesus sets is so high. What I'm talking about is a love that is beyond emotion, a love that is beyond commitment, a love that is beyond action. I'm talking about a God-type love. And the only way we can understand that is that if you have a relationship with God uh, for any length of time, I would ask you this. How does God love you? Does God feel things about you? Yes, he does. Is God faithful to you? Yes, he is. Is he generous to you? Yes, he is. Does he protect you? Yes, he does. Some of you do not have a long-term relationship with God, and this is a little hard to kind of grab onto, so let's spin it another way. What does a super healthy parent do for their child to love them? Okay, maybe that's a little easier for you to grab onto. Do really healthy parents feel things about their kids? Do they carry them in their heart? Do they shield and protect them? Do they pray for them? Do they guide them? Do they guard them? Right? And we could go on and on and on. That type of love is for all of us that call ourselves Christians to express to the world and to our enemies. That's why I'm telling you the bar is way up here. It is not simply, let's be nice to people. It is not simply, let's think nice things. It is literally loving like God loves. So the fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you is simply this. Love God, love people the right way. Right? I mean, it couldn't be more basic than that. Love God, love people the right way. How are we going to do that? You're going to see... A couple stories Jesus is about to bring out that kind of bring a lot of things alive, all right? Last time we were together, we talked about this message called Supercharged, and it was Jesus sending out 72 of his followers two by two. Man, they were so excited. They came back and they're like, Jesus, it was so awesome. We're on this mission trip. We're casting out demons. We're healing the sick. We're preaching the word. I mean, it was incredible. And he said, man, that is so exciting. But remember that we got to get most fired up about the most critical things. And as much as that power and authority is awesome and you got it and that's great. Remember, uh, the core is that you have me. The core is that your name is written in my book of life in heaven, secured there. That's actually what we need to be most fired up about. 
don't get me wrong. I love what you're doing. I'm the one that sent you out to do it. It was exciting. But let's make sure that we have our priorities right. And you're kind of like, well, Jesus, that was kind of a buzzkill, man. I mean, everybody's all fired up. And then you're kind of like, well, there's a more important thing. Why can't you just let me be happy? No, no, no. Jesus was amped. And you're going to find out why here in a second. But before we do that, one last thought. Gospel authors, when they write their books, they have themes that weave throughout them. They collect stories based on what they're trying to say. Because we always ask, well, why is this story in the Bible? Why this one? Why not this one? Right? Because they all have a point to make. One of the themes that Luke is trying to teach right now is on a theme of hospitality. If you remember, the 72 were sent out to these villages, and if the village received them, there was blessing upon them. If they did not receive them, if they were inhospitable, they were then to leave, shake off the sandal, uh, the dust from their sandals and move on. And Jesus said, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on that day than that city. And I told you that in the Jewish mindset, Sodom and Gomorrah's destruction was primarily about hospitality even more than wickedness. With that same theme of hospitality weaving through, take a look at these couple of stories because Luke is about to expand out what we are supposed to do. But make no mistake, Jesus is amped. We pick it up right here, Luke chapter 10, verse 21. In that same hour that the 72 came back and were rejoicing, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? That word rejoice, uh, to me, rejoice does not have a heavy connotation. I, 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 don't, I don't use that in my day-to-day life, uh, so I don't really know what it means. Um, this word is an intensified form of that, and it literally is used as well for people running and jumping in excitement. So this is not like, yay. I mean, it, it's not the little flag waving, yay, that's not it. It's like, woo, you know, so Jesus is super amped. He's really excited and he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, uh, what do you mean rejoice in the Holy Spirit? What, what, is that different than normal rejoicing? I mean, have, have you ever like rejoiced and went, oh, I don't know, was that in the Holy Spirit or was that, is this a supernatural thing? Is this a practical thing? I mean, what, what do you mean? rejoicing in the holy spirit is that are we talking about tongues are we talking about something bizarre are we talking what are you trying to say what does it mean to rejoice in the holy spirit now most of us we would just kind of move on and go yeah 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 he rejoiced i couldn't do that i had to go back and i looked at that phrase because the phrase in the holy spirit is attached to a lot of things said or done and i went back and analyzed them so i went back in the new testament and there was really Five passages that use that phrase that I kind of tracked on and did research on. Two of them were the same story. So really there's four scenarios. What does it mean to do something in the Holy Spirit? Well, one of them obviously can be that all scripture was written through man, breathed out by the Holy Spirit, right? So, so the writing of scripture was by the Holy Spirit. All right, we got that one. What else? Well, there's a quote that says, King David said in the Holy Spirit, my Lord said to the Lord, and he goes on and does prophecy. So prophecy is in the Holy Spirit. And and so they tied that one in. Then there's this passage that says, don't worry when you're persecuted, when you're drugged before the authorities, for in that moment, don't worry what you're going to say, for in that moment, the Holy Spirit will tell you what to say. And I'm I'm looking at this going, okay, so I get it. It's supernatural in concept, but does it feel different? Does it feel regular? Does it feel practical? And then I began thinking about this. I think this happens a lot more than we would like to uh, like to admit. I think that the Holy Spirit has an awful lot to say. And there are periodic times that he is saying to his kids, hold on, I got this one. And just moves you aside. Right? He's like, you mind if I borrow your voice box? Awesome. Cool. So come on over here. Now, here's where the most common way I've ever seen this happen 
and this may have happened to you. Have you ever had a time when someone comes up to you and they're like, man, I am tore up, I'm hurting, I need prayer, I just need someone to talk, with, talk to for a moment, and they sit down and seek your counsel. And while you're talking to them, while you're sharing and ministering to them, you all of a sudden start going, dang, I'm, I'm really good at this. Have you ever, have you ever done that? Where you're sitting there and you're like, man, I'm getting like verses coming to my mind. I didn't even memorize those. Where are those coming from, right? And you're like, man, I'm brilliant. You know, I mean, uh, I'm like, wow, look at me, counselor, extraordinaire, right? And you're, you're sharing this stuff and it's like way over your head, right? It's, that's not normal. I think that's it. I think that is an example of the Holy Spirit going, hold on, I'm going. Now you go, yeah, but it, that, it just feels like I'm, I thought it's something. I know. I'm not saying it's freaky. I'm not saying it's weird. I'm saying that the Holy Spirit goes and pause you on me. Here we go. Because there's times that God just goes, I've got something to say and I'm going to say it better than you're ever going to say it. And I'm going to glorify my name. And if I just left it to you, uh, you know what? You wouldn't be able to express what I'm trying to say. So I'm going to go ahead and take over. I think that the more we're saturated in the word of God, the more we're connected to him, the more that we love him, the more there is that freedom where he just goes off. And and it doesn't, I'm just really trying to share. It's not that it always has to, oh, there's some real bizarre incident or, oh, it's so strange or it's, no, it's just God using his people going, we're going right now. And I think that he does that right here. So what did the Holy Spirit inspire Jesus to say well he inspires a praise thanksgiving prayer and it goes like this and jesus said to the whole crowd who had gathered i thank you father lord of heaven and earth that you have hidden these things these mysteries these these insights these experiences from the wise and understanding and you have revealed them to little children people of simple heart and faith trusting and believing yes father for this was your plan all along this is your gracious will what is he saying it almost sounds like he's saying father man i am so excited because you have brought in these truths and mysteries and beauty and you're not giving them to all the super academics and all the brilliant people in the world but you're giving them to my dumb little friends now is that what he's saying well kind (laughs) of he's just saying listen these guys are not hyper educated they're not i mean they're not the elite These are normal folks, and yet God has kind of said, listen, I know the people that are studying 24 hours a day up on that hill up there. I'm actually hanging with the normal folks, and I'm just saying, here, and I hand it to him. And Jesus goes, I love that. Okay, as cool as that is, I got a question. Why hide it from anyone at all? Why not just give everybody the message? I mean, I, I, it's kind of like, well, I'm, sh- I'm blocking this person and I'm giving it to this person. And, and that really sounds neat, but why are we shielding anything? Why, why does Jesus seem to make it so hard sometimes, right? I mean, we've talked about this, so I don't want to belabor it, but, but doesn't it seem like, you know, you're like, God, so what, what are you doing in my life? And he's like, I have a parable. You're like, I don't want a parable. No, and he's like there once was a man. No, not once was a man. Just tell me what we're doing. Just tell me of oh, honestly, just just straightforward. And Lance, this is what's going on in your life. That would be so odd. Why are we like hiding it and moving it and being enigmatic and we're doing apocalyptic literature, which we're like, I don't even know what that means. And then we're doing prophecy where people are seeing stuff they don't even get. Why are we making this so hard? As I've taught on it before. I won't go any longer than this. Here's why, in my opinion. For God communicating to man, it is less an issue of transfer of information than building a relationship. And what it means is that when you make it difficult, it strains out or filters people that are just interested in trivia. If you're interested in merely going by and doing information gathering and trying to stuff things in your pockets from God and leave him behind, Christianity is not for you. It doesn't work. When things are difficult, you got to really want to know. You got to really press in. You got to really engage. You can't just blow by and pick up a little Jesus dust and move on. 
He's like, you know what? You didn't even understand that, did you? You're like, no, man, it's super complicated. And he's like, then ask me. Well, what did it mean? Well, I'm glad you asked. And then he begins to share and talk with you a little bit more. Do you understand also that there are some truths of scripture you will not know unless you engage with them? You literally have to begin walking in them for them to come to life to you. As long as you are on the outside, they will always remain a mystery. Some of us want to know everything before we step in. I'm just telling you, you're going to remain on the outside. It moves on. It says this. Jesus goes off on a little side tangent. Verse 22. He said, all things have been handed over, have been delivered, have been committed to me by my father. And no one knows who the son really is except the father or who the father really is except the son. And of course, anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. What in the world does that mean? What, speaking of complicated, what does that mean? It's actually pretty simple. By definition, God is unknowable. He is deity. We are not. He is not like us. We can never say God is like and then mention something on earth because by definition, he is holy. Holy means other. It's a, a totally different sort. And therefore, the best you can ever get to is God is kind of like. You can't get to like. It's not just a bigger version of what we see here. It's not like we say, you know what? I'm super sweet to my kids. God is like that, but bigger. You can say God is kind of like that, but more infinite. But his love is so purified and at a whole different level, it blows away anything about how we love each other. So if he is unknowable, how will we ever then know him unless he steps down and reveals it to us, which is what he did by sending Jesus. All of a sudden he puts skin on him, walks around and goes, let me tell you in your own language what I'm like. The son reveals the father, but then the son's standing there and people look at him and go, man, he seems like a good teacher, seems like a nice guy, has a decent beard, right? But they have no idea that he is fully human, full deity, that he is a dual nature, he is part of the triune being God, that he's going to die for the sins of the world, that he's going to raise again. Nobody even sees that. So how are they ever going to know who really Jesus is? Until the Father opens up their minds and their hearts. There are some truths that are only spiritually discerned. And it's neat because it says, and you know what? You'd never know any of that unless God told us. But how beautiful is it that God has told us? What is this beautiful secret that is being revealed to us? The beautiful secret is that God is a loving God. And that God desires a relationship with his creation. I know that maybe for you that have been in the church, that's old news. But for our world around us, that's good news. Amen? Verse 23, then turning to the disciples, like the 72, so now he's kind of getting personal about this. He said privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you, Many prophets and kings desire to see what you see and didn't see it. And they wanted to hear what you hear, but they didn't hear it. What does that word blessed mean? It's makarios. It's the same thing that's in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those that mourn, right? That whole thing. It means not just blessed, not just happy. It means fully satisfied and fully filled with God's goodness and fully filled with his presence. Filled up are those that see what you see. Because, man, tons of kings wanted to know this stuff. Lots of prophets wanted to know it. They didn't get it. Now you're getting it. Isn't that exciting? Who's he talking about? Well, imagine King David. Uh, other than Jesus, the greatest king Israel has ever had. He wrote a lot of the book called Psalms. And he's always saying, God, I long for you. I long for you. I long for you. I long for you. Wouldn't he want to know more about God? But he didn't. He never saw the cross on the earth. He never saw the full 
explanation and demonstration that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. He never got to see that God's love was so strong that he gave his only son that whosoever would believe in him would not die, but would have eternal life. He never got to see the coming of the Holy Spirit that on Pentecost, through the ripped open curtain, the Holy Spirit went and indwelt his people. I mean, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came, the Holy Spirit went. The Holy Spirit would come upon Samson, boom, he gets all ripped, he starts killing stuff, and then all of a sudden the Holy Spirit goes away. And then the Holy Spirit comes upon this one young kid, he kills a giant, and the Holy Spirit goes away. Now we live in a world where the Holy Spirit doesn't go away. Man. Amen, yeah? He said, blessed are you because all the prophets they wanted to see this stuff but they're getting weird like and i saw a beast rising out of the ocean and they're they're like what does this mean and god's like never mind just keep writing it down they had no idea what's happening they're totally lost and he's like i laid at the river unable to eat for seven days you know and you're he doesn't get it they don't get it but we end up starting to see it be fulfilled and he's like they all wanted to see what you see right now and you don't seem very excited about it Verse 25, Jesus said, and seriously, check this out. A lawyer, this is Luke talking, a lawyer, a Torah scholar, first five books of the Bible, expert in the law, knows the rules and regulations backwards and forward. He was sitting there at the teaching of Jesus, like everybody does, sitting around a sitting rabbi. But then when you have a question, he stood up. Now, standing up to ask a question is a sign of respect. So he would kind of, he's playing the humble card. Hey, look at me. I'm a little humble student. I have a question for you, teacher. But actually, he's not fully a good guy. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? A couple problems with this. First of all, it's insulting. Why? He is going to try to use God's word to harm God. We have a problem with that. He is going to try to use his word against him. He's trying to trap the son of God by the word of God. But Jesus is the word of God. You understand what I'm saying? This is messed up. How does creation get into some cocky place where we then try to throw God's word back at him, twist it, and try to manipulate him through it? And you're like, nobody would ever do that. We're doing it all the time. Lance, how am I doing that? All right, here's how the game goes. God, seriously, this is my life. This is what I have. Do you not realize, Lord, in your word it says, and I don't understand why you're not doing that for me, and how come you do it for everybody else, and you're not doing If you were really, listen, man, I need to mount up on wings like eagles and, and other refrigerator magnet stuff, and I'm not doing that right now, and you're a bad leader. Right? Did you just try to use God's word to manipulate God? That's messed up. Hmm. The other thing that's really weird is it's actually a bizarre question, just starting with. Here's the question What must I do to inherit eternal life? I don't know. What can you do to inherit anything other than kill the person? Right? <laughs> you, don't in, you don't do anything to inherit. It's, it's not, one commentary said, it's not payment for services rendered. Either it comes to you from the trust or it does not. You don't do anything for it. It's an inheritance. So why are we even having the discussion? This lawyer knows this. Why are we having the discussion of what must I do to inherit? I don't know. If it's your inheritance, you just inherit it. You're not doing anything. So for, that's just a, a very, very bizarre question. But here's what's really happening. He's trying to get into a debate about religion. The spirit of religion says this. What must I do to get God and his stuff? Christianity says, what has God done that I might be saved and gain access to my Lord? In other words, Christianity deviates from all religions in the world on this point specifically. All religion says, I want something greater, so what must I do to get it? 
Christianity says you can't do anything. So unless he comes all the way your direction, we're in trouble. Christianity is more about what God has done than what we're doing. Make sense? Regardless, he tries to get him into this debate. So Jesus, as brilliant as he is, he always spins things the right way. And he said to him, I don't know, Mr. Law guy, what's written in the law? Let's go back to your little wheelhouse, right? So how about you help me out with the law? How do you read it? And the man quoted Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, Deuteronomy 11, 13 through 20, and Leviticus 19, 18. He's pretty good at this. And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor is yourself. And Jesus said to him, you answered correctly. Go ahead, do that. You'll live. Was Jesus messing with him? Was, was this a perfection challenge? Going, hey, you just said do everything perfectly. Hey, if you do everything perfectly, we don't have a problem. No, unfortunately, you're not perfect. You already screwed up before you got here. So you're kind of wrecked there. But anyway, all I'm saying is that, yeah, if you do everything perfect, we have righteousness. Uh, hey, I'm here for sin. If you don't have any sin ever, well, then pff, I guess we don't have any need. Is he messing with him or is he trying to give him a deeper thought which said if you truly loved God like you ought, if you truly love people like you ought, you would naturally fulfill the entire scriptures and we wouldn't have a problem. You understand that every sin is a violation of a love concept. So if we always love perfectly, there is no sin. I don't know which direction Jesus was necessarily going on that. I do know this. We are commanded to love God and love people with a holistic love. When it says heart, mind, soul, and strength, we're not supposed to try to split that out and go, which part is the heart? Which part is the soul? It means all of you, all y'all, right? It means just everything you got, love with that. And you're like, you know, like my emotions? I don't know. Do you have emotions? Yep, then do that. Well, I don't know, like my, my intelligence? Yeah, and your intelligence. Well, like my will? Yeah, your will. Well, like, okay, yes. The answer is yes. Whatever you're going to bring up, if you got it, you love that way. You love with all of that. And here's what's interesting is in the Old Testament, certain personalities glom toward the Old Testament. They're black and white thinkers. So all of you that are black and white thinkers, like things in right, wrong, good, bad, clean categories, you're going to like the Old Testament a little bit more because it was more overt and obvious and more ritual-based. So for example, you could settle in and go, listen, I'm doing my best, but I know that I mess up, so I'm in the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. So I know that if I do this type of sin, I gotta go offer two pigeons. Oh, if I gotta do this, then I gotta do this. Then I gotta wash like this, and then I'll be clean, and I gotta unclean, you know, I gotta clean up my house, and I gotta do this, and I gotta... You know the system. Some people are very peaceful in systems. Some people aren't. You get to the New Testament and what happens? God is like, all right, that whole killing animals thing, that was really just a test for your heart anyway, and you all kind of failed that. So we're going to stop the whole killing animals thing. We're going to go straight to the real issue. The real issue is I want you to love me. And in some ways, it's super freeing because Jesus even said, come to me, you who are all weighed down by the rituals and the rules and the regulations, and I'll give you rest. Do you remember that? But he also made it super elusive and messy. Am I loving God enough? Right? Isn't that kind of where it gets weird? Do you ever know if you love anybody? I mean, I sit there and I'm over analyzer guy. So I'm just like, do I love my wife? Do I love my dog? Do I love ice cream? Do I love, I don't know what I love. I don't know what's happening. Do I love enough? You know, and we start getting in all these little paranoia areas where we're trying to figure, I've had so many people come to me as a pastor and go, am I feeling for God what I'm supposed to be feeling? Everyone's like, oh, I love God. He's my best friend. All we do is hang out all the time. And I'm going, man, I don't even know what you're talking about. And I'm sitting there praying and it's like cricket, 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 and nothing's happening. And so I, I, am I, am I wrong? Is there something wrong with me? I mean, is there like demon blocks? Are there, you know, what's happening here? Okay. Cause it gets messy. But what happens is so many of our questions are like, God, am I loving you enough? Am I loving you enough? Am I doing enough? Am I doing? Most of that is to say, let me just be peaceful that I've got you contained. Please tell me that I got my arms around you and you're my pocket God. So I can make sure that I'm all right. He goes, how come we can't just trust me and go, hi, Jesus. I love you. 
let's do something today. That's relationship. Your whole paranoia of making sure that you get everything right so you can stick me in your back pocket and move on doesn't work. I just want you to say, hi, Jesus, every day, right? And then it says this. By the way, the next right question after Jesus says, do the perfect thing and you'll live, the next question that was right that he didn't ask should have been, and how exactly can I do that? That's kind of impossible. He didn't ask that question. He's quite convinced he's doing well. Verse 29. But he, this lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who exactly is my neighbor? Okay, what does it mean that he's trying to justify himself? Uh, It could be that he's going, man, I'm in a big crowd. Everybody's going to look at me and go, man, that guy's intelligent. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to go, hey, rabbi, real quick, I have a question for you as your humble servant. Uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I already know the answer. Okay. So you're going to go back to me and you're going to go, well, I don't know what's in the law. And I'm like, bam, I got three scriptures for you. <laughs> right. And then I'm like this one, this one, this one, love your God. And then you're supposed to go, wow, you're super smart. And then everyone goes, wow, he's super smart. And then I'm supposed to go, ha, I'm not done yet. And then I have another question in my pocket and I'm like, and who's my neighbor? And then you're supposed to say, well, I don't know. Who do you see your neighbor as? And then I get to tell you. It didn't go that way. <laughs> or was he trying to justify himself in a spiritual way? Do you understand that the concept of the cross is that because of the blood that Jesus shed, because he died for our sins, all of us who trust in him, our sins are now paid for and we are justified in the eyes of God. It means we are perfect in his eyes because he allowed Jesus to pay the payment. We are justified by him, but this guy was trying to justify what? Himself. We all got that? That's where we're running into attention. And the question about who's my neighbor was a constant debate among the Jews. Who's my neighbor? And they're really looking at the Old Testament, and they believed that there was really two camps. Either the Jews were supposed to only love good, righteous Jews, or they're supposed to love good, righteous Jews and foreigners that were good righteous people those are the only two options so the guy's waiting for jesus to take a stand on either camp like are we doing the big one are we doing the small one right i think i can even nail you on the big one i think we're good and then jesus goes off in a completely different direction so why do the jews have this confidence that they're allowed to not love people why do they think that it's okay to hate people because they did you know why because they grab scriptures like Psalm 139, 19 through 22, and it says this. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you, God, with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Oh, that's why. So they're going back and going, whoa, whoa, whoa. Enemies of God? That's my enemies. I'm on God's team. They had no idea Jesus was about to go, yeah, love your enemies. They were still trying to figure out who enemies were. So they were like, I, don't, I only love people that are righteous because anyone that is unrighteous, I hate them because God hates them. They're his enemies because they're against him. I hate all foreigners because they are not serving the Lord. I hate all people around. And they got into this massive racism problem. And they thought they were justified by scripture. And then Jesus blows their world apart. He said, hey, real quick, I got a story for you. Jesus replied, a man, now let's assume this guy's a Jew. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now that is, whenever the Bible says going down, it always means an elevation. That is actually in a 17 mile trek, that is a 3,500 foot drop. So, I mean, it's some serious going down, right? That's why they would say down, is you're going down a mountain. Uh, And it's a road that, although it was used a lot by temple workers, because a lot of temple workers lived in Jericho, and they would do two-week stints up in the capital, and then they'd go home. Even though it was used a lot by that, people would travel in caravans, or they'd travel on horseback, because it was a famously dangerous place. This This is rough land, okay? This is in the south of Israel. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers. That's why you don't go alone who stripped him naked and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead, unable to care for himself. Now, by chance, it happened that a priest, a guy that ministers before God directly, 
was going down that road, and usually the priests were wealthy, so he was probably riding a horse. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side in complete avoidance. So likewise, a temple helper, a, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. Whether he was influenced by the priest or not, we don't know. Why are these guys avoiding this dude? He's a Jew, right? And so you'd kind of go, you could earn extra brownie points in your righteousness. Why would you avoid this guy? Well, here's what I was taught growing up. I was always taught that they did not want to get next to him because what if the guy's dead? And if the guy's dead, then they're going to end up touching or being around a corpse. And if you're around the corpse, then all of a sudden you're unclean. You can't do your temple work. You have to be unclean seven days. It's going to wreck your whole household, and that's going to be a whole problem. They don't know if the guy, he's unconscious. They don't know if he's dead or not. They don't want to go over there and check it and risk it. And so they were more concerned about honoring God than they were about taking care of this man. That's what I was always taught. Here's the problem with that. They're going the wrong way. They're not going to temple. They're done. They're actually traveling from Jerusalem back home. So they're not worried about being defiled for temple. Now, do they still have clean and unclean laws? Sure they do. And maybe that was in their mind. But here's the point. This is not a ritual defilement problem before God. This is a I don't love you enough to stop problem. It's a love issue. It's not a religious issue, although religion played a part in it. But understand, a priest, and this is, everyone's like, ooh, I can't believe a priest did that. Do you realize that priests were born into it? That wasn't a career choice. You're born, either you are a descendant of Aaron, and you're a priest, or you're not. Either you are a descendant of Levi, or you weren't. You don't get to pick that as your job. But these guys also were kind of honored and they were trained up. And so they were supposed to be God's representatives. So of all people, shouldn't they have had the compassion? That was Jesus' point. But they don't. They completely avoid this guy. All right. So let me ask you this quick question. Even though religion didn't play a huge part in it, it kind of did. Is it ever happened that in this world that people get so tied up in the rules and regulations of their religion that they actually are no longer compassionate? Does that ever happen? Or is our world not full of that? Right? Let's make it personal. What about you? Who are you walking by? Who are you avoiding? And you feel justified by your religion for doing so. You keep thinking you're honoring God by being a jerk. And I'm not quite sure why that's okay. Uh, you'll look through and you'll say, you know, well, uh, there's got to be this and there's got to be that. I'm not telling you there doesn't have to be boundaries. I'm not telling you there doesn't have to be stands for righteousness. I'm not telling you that there's not things that we need to understand from Scripture. What I'm telling you is there is never a Christian excuse for lack of compassion. If you ever have to put a boundary in, your heart better die over that decision. You understand? You better want to love them so badly and you want to care for them and affirm them so badly, but you can't because of some resistance that you have clearly expressed in scripture. But there's never a time your heart is allowed to be hard. There's never a time you're not allowed to care, right? And so he starts getting into this and he said, all right, third guy's coming. They're like, okay, we get it. Priest comes, Levite comes, regular Jew comes. He's like, no. But then a Samaritan shows up. They're like, a what? A Samaritan. Oh, no, 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 no. Jesus, you're telling the story wrong. Samaritans don't do anything. Okay, real quick, you got to know this story. In the middle of Israel, there's a section around a city called Samaria. If you live in the Samaria area, you are called a Samaritan. There we go. That's not rocket science. We have a little area called Samaria. And so the Samaritans are a special group of people that go back hundreds of years. So from Jesus, in 586 BC, the Jews lost their land completely. They had already been taken out in the north in 722. Now it's 586 and the Jews get removed completely from their land taken away by Babylon. That's for judgment. Everyone assumed Israel's done. There was only a few left around, like a little remnant, a little fragment. And then Babylon, knowing they just depopulated a place, backfill it with foreigners because they want people that kind of are in their groove. So they fill it in with other people. 
Well, those other, when everyone thinks Israel's done, the regular Jews that are hanging out there, a bunch of them are like, who are we supposed to hang out with and marry? We're done being Israel. I guess I'm going to marry that cute girl over there that's from, I don't know, I don't even understand her. But anyway, she's cute. So we'll go ahead. And they started intermarrying and having families and stuff like that. And all of a sudden, the Jews come back from Babylon, right? Ding dong. Hi, we're the Jews. Oh, it's good to see you back. Really didn't expect you. I thought you were always going to be gone. What are you doing here? We're going to rebuild Jerusalem. Okay, well, we'll help you out. Uh, No, you won't. I see your wife is awfully attractive. However, she is not exactly a Jew. And I can look around and see that your kids are not exactly Jewish. And so therefore, you're not doing anything with us. You're a half breed now. And they got rejected. Now, you got to understand that is a massive problem. So all of a sudden they rejected them and cast them out and said, no, 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 we're the pure ones that are coming back into our land. They began to wall off areas and say, you can't worship with us. And so they said, we'll worship our own way. And they said, you can't come in this. And they said, we'll do it ourselves. And they said, you can't learn from our teaching. So they made up their own teaching. And this animosity grew and grew and grew. So bad that the Jews would literally go around the Samaritan territory, not even to get dirt on their sandals from the Samaritans. They hated each other. So now Jesus drops this guy in the story. And they're like, ew, right? But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, he's traveling merchant, came to where this guy was. It was all beat up. And when he saw him, he was alert enough to see this guy. He had compassion. That word in Greek means you are moved from the deepest place of your bowels. Valentine's Day is coming up. And here's what I suggest, gentlemen. You get a nice card and you get some flowers. And you say, honey, in the spirit of the Lord, you move my bowels. That's, that's what I'm saying. I just, just a recommendation. Anyway, not everybody is as romantic as I am. Uh, he had compassion. He went to him on that guy's terms where he was, which is super risky. Who knows if this is a trap, but he risks it anyway. He binds up his wounds. That's personal touch. That's risky. Who knows where this guy has been? He pours oil and wine on him as an antiseptic and a balm. Then he sets him on his own animal. So now he used to be able to ride, but now he has to walk all the way the rest of the way, which is hugely inconvenient. And then he brought him to an inn and you can't get an inn outside of the villages. So he had to go into a village. What's the problem with that? He's a Samaritan and he's in the wrong turf. He should have never been here in the first place. So the whole idea that a Samaritan is outside his neighborhood and he's now down into somebody else's neighborhood, that's already dangerous for him. He risks extra by going into the village, goes into the inn, takes care of him on his own time time at the cost of disrupting his own plans and the stays all night the next day he takes out two denarii which is two days wages which will help pay for up to two weeks to two months of stay in this inn gives them to the innkeeper said take care of him whatever more you spend i will repay you when i come back and that is risking even more money So which one of these, Jesus said, do you think proved by action and evidence to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The guy's like, ah, the one that showed him mercy, I guess. And Jesus said, yeah, how about you go do that? That's not a, hey, how about you think about doing that? Or, hey, how about you consider that? You understand that's a command? Yeah, you go do that. Well, Lord, it's inconvenient. I don't care. Lord, it's kind of costly. I don't care. Well, Lord, I don't really like them. I don't care. Do it. That's what we do. You understand the hospitality connection? Let's close with this story. Next verse, 38. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus and his group, Jesus entered a village. We know that village is Bethany, about two miles east of Jerusalem. On the Mount of Olives, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. Now she has a sister named Mary. She has a brother named Lazarus. Somebody's like Bob. No, that's not that's not correct. Um, there's no mention of Lazarus. This is likely Martha's house. So why in the world is a rabbi who are always male and a bunch of guys going and hanging out in a single woman's house? That's unacceptable. Guys don't even talk to women in public. 
but Jesus did. Why? Luke has chronicled all the way through how Jesus brings equality with women forward. And he allows them to be disciples. He allows them to be a part of the ministry. He allows them to fund the operation. He allows them to be in deep conversations. He allows them to do all the stuff that the boys are doing. Watch this. And yeah, amen. We got an amen on that one. I, I, thought, I thought your sisters would have your back on that one, but all right, all right. All right, verse 39. And she had a sister called Mary, which is actually the Greek name Miriam, which is a version of the Hebrew name Miriam, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Do you know what that means? It means she's a disciple now. That's what disciples do. To sit at someone's feet is to be a disciple of. When Paul was explaining his education, he said, I sat at the feet of Gamaliel, who was this brilliant academic professor guy. To sit at the feet is not, oh, I just sat down. Women weren't allowed to sit down. Women weren't allowed to be around rabbis. Not only did Jesus allow it, he encouraged it. Watch what happened. But Martha was distracted with much serving. That Greek word means she was drugged all over the place by her serving. Quick pause. Mary was mentioned in scripture three times. Each time she's at the feet of Jesus. Here she is in a learning posture. One time when Lazarus dies, she falls at Jesus's feet and says, if you were here, my brother would not have died. So she falls in worship and respect. And then the third time she is anointing his feet with perfume and wiping his feet with her hair. So Mary is always at the feet of Jesus. What does she know that we don't know? Right? And then imagine Martha, who is the older one, who probably owns the home, has a lot of responsibility, is now a super popular preacher guy just walked in. She wants him to eat the best. She wants it to look the best. She probably prepared a lot. But why? She went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to get up and help me. (laughs) All right. Well, that's clear. So she goes and interrupts the Lord in order to get her sister, who apparently is lazy, to get up and help her in the kitchen. And she's not listening to me, Lord. You need to bring down the hammer. You know, she always does this, right? I mean, there's all that kind of stuff going on. But the Lord answered her tenderly, Martha, Martha. Whenever he said stuff twice, that was kind of a tender connection, like gentleness. This isn't a big lashing. This is a, hun, whoa, you're way out of line here. So I'm going to be really sweet, but you understand that I'm about to correct you. Okay, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. I would add that I never asked for. But one thing is necessary, and Mary has chosen the good portion, and that's not going to be taken away from her. What does this mean? Look at her posture. Lord, seriously? Get her to get up. I'm doing this all alone. I don't know if you understand maybe the stress of trying to make a meal for everybody here because we got your whole crew, right? There's 13 of you guys. I'm trying to make this meal and she's sitting around doing nothing. God, I'm doing it for you. Don't you understand? I'm doing all this for you so I could use a little help from you to get somebody motivated to get up and help me in my ministry. What's the problem with that? Well, we all say that. Lord, really? I'm doing ministry all by myself. I got to do that. I'm doing it for you. Does it really have to be this hard? How about a little help, man? Kick down a little something. I'm doing it for you. Are you? Because that's funny. I never asked you that. Here's what should have happened, Martha. You walk in. Hey, Jesus, what do you want for dinner? Pot pie? Like from scratch? Nope. Microwave it. What you got cooking in there? Four course meal. Why? I want a pot pie. (laughs) Some scholars believe that although this is out of chronological order for Luke, some people believe that this was his last trip to Jerusalem and he was on his way in. This is going to be the last week of his life. The last thing he needs is a four course meal. What he wants to do is be with his friends. He doesn't want them off doing ministry. He just wants to be with them. Hey, guess what? I don't care what we're eating. I know you do. I want you, you want to look to impress me. That doesn't impress me. You know what impresses me is you being with me. I know you're doing all kinds of fancy stuff and you're killing yourself for the ministry. You know what? I'm not interested in that. I could have done that without you. If I wanted to, do you understand that I multiply loaves and fish with my hands? Do you understand that I can do the little Fantasia, little Snow White thing where I can make the little broom move by itself inside the kitchen and it can fix up the stuff while we're all eating here? I don't need you to fix me this grand meal. I just want you to be with me. 
And then she's playing this comparison game. What about my sister? What about my sister? What about my sister? What about my sister? How come she's not stressing out like I'm stressing out? We play that comparison game all the time. When Jesus came back to life, he's walking with Peter on the sand. John's trailing behind him. And he said, hey, Peter, real quick, when you die, it's not going to go well, dude. Just letting you know. Peter's like, what? Well, what about him? He's like, don't look at him. We're talking about you. I know, but like, what about him? <laughs> Is he going to die, Matt, or what's going to happen? It's a comparison thing all the time. We keep playing that game. Why is my life so hard? Why is their life so easy? Why does everything? We can't do that. Jesus said there's one necessary thing. What is that? To sit at his feet and soak him in. Don't disrupt the greater for the lesser. Don't lose the best connection with God just because of busy ministry. Yeah? So the message is what? There's a lot of hospitality, but hospitality is about love. And we don't just need to love. We need to love in a God kind of love. We don't just need to love Jesus in any way. We need to love Jesus like he wants to be loved. And if we spend all our time burning out and getting angry at him and his kids because we are doing things he never asked us to do, we don't have a leg to stand on. What he would like us to do is say, hey, Jesus, what can I do for you today? Well, I don't know. That person right there is crying. I, I don't want to be Captain Obvious, but maybe maybe it should go kind of go that way, right? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, I'm, I'm sure she'll be fine. I didn't see her fall or anything. Is there anything that you can have that you can have me do that's that's like bum bum, right? Nope, nope. So after after I pray for her and everything, which I can totally do fast, I'm really good at it. After I pray for her and everything, uh, and she's the same, can, uh, is, there, is there anything else that I can do today? I don't know. That's just your big move of the day. There you go. That's it. Seriously, that, that's kind of a waste of time. Is it now? I think, I think I'm actually in charge. So if I tell you to take the rest of the day off, I told you to take the rest of the day off. Are we listening? Are we loving? Are we even honoring our God? That's the question. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your kindness and your pouring love into us so that we would even know how to love. God, we're still, oh Lord, I'm surrounded by loving people. I'm surrounded by incredible intentions and beautiful motivations. I'm surrounded by a family that cares for me and they would drop everything to care for me. And, and Lord, I just pray that that same love would be for their enemies. I pray that that same softness, that that same care and concern, that same, I worry if Pastor Lance is okay, is he going to be able to preach today? I wish all that was transferred to the enemies, the one that has hurt us, the one that is yucky, the one that we don't like, the one that's in the wrong category, the one that doesn't be, isn't like us. God, that we would love like that. Please increase my love so that I can lead from that position as well to be just like you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.